Hi. How is everybody? Good. All right, so this week I saw a video from CNN. It came over my feed. Maybe you saw this one too. It was about a pastor named Reverend Linda Barnes Popham. Reverend Linda has been the pastor at Fern Creek Baptist Church for over 30 years and has attended there for much longer than that. And in this video, Linda is preparing for worship. She's greeting people at the door. She's preaching from the pulpit in her small Kentucky church. The video shows her congregants talking about her and saying with deep love about their pastor that Linda is our shepherd. Linda is a force of nature. And Linda was truly called by God to do what she is doing. But Fern Creek Baptist Church has just been kicked out of its denomination. It's no longer part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Why? Because Linda is a woman. And why is that not okay? Because the Bible says that women can't be pastors. The, the video about Reverend Linda ends when she goes to her congregation and she says, if you want to be Southern Baptist, then I will leave. I do not want to stand in the way of the church. So the congregation held a vote and they voted unanimously to no longer call themselves Southern Baptist so that they could keep their pastor. So in a way, it's a happy ending, but I hate that it is happening. It makes me so sad and frustrated it is such a bummer, and there are stronger words that I could use than bummer, but I've decided on bummer. It is such a bummer when anyone's calling is up for debate, and it's such a bummer when women's rights are up for debate, and it is a particularly frustrating bummer when the justification for those debates comes from the Bible. It makes me want to be like, listen, I can do that too. I can get some proof texts and some statistics. I can put together a whole PowerPoint presentation on all the ways that I feel that the Bible values women, complete with bibliographies and original sources and scholars and ancient texts with Greek words that I've translated. I too can use the Bible to prove that I am right and everyone else is wrong. Theologian and author Sarah Bessie talks about this in one of her books, about the desire that we all have to use the Bible to prove our own points. At the end of the day, she says, both sides can treat the Bible like a weapon, and I don't think that God is glorified by tightly crafted arguments wielded as weaponry. I'm going to read that one one more time for my own self. I don't think God is glorified by tightly crafted arguments wielded as weaponry. Instead, Sarah Bessie says, I want to approach the mysteries of God and the unique experiences of humanity with wonder and humility and a listener's heart. And so it is with a listener's heart that I approach our gospel text today. The story I chose is from the gospel of Mark, and that same story appears in both the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke. 
It's a text, it's a story that has just kept popping into my head over and over again across the last few months. And I think that if you can't stop thinking about a particular story from the Bible, you should probably pay attention to that. That might be a little nod that there is some wisdom there for you, maybe something you need to learn if you have a listener's heart. So I read the text and I did some research and here are the things that I learned about this story. In the story, Jesus' ministry is currently at the height of its popularity. He's basically dropping his Billboard Hot 100 greatest hits. He's got his 12 disciples. He just released the Sermon on the Mount. He's using parables and illustrations that people really love and can relate to. He's calming storms. He's healing the blind. People are loving it. They're eating it up. He's basically Taylor Swift. So Jesus gets back from releasing a demon across the sea, and when he gets back, immediately people start following him again. It says the crowds were pressing in on him during his journey, and one of those people in the crowd was an unnamed woman. Okay, so we know right away that our unnamed woman has two really unfortunate things going on with her. The first thing that we are told about her is that she has been suffering from a flow of blood for 12 years. The word for blood here refers to menstruation, but obviously this is not a normal period. This woman has a disorder. Modern scholars guess that she was experiencing what we call menorrhagia, which is an excessive menstrual bleeding that can last 10 to 12 days. That diagnosis today would require medical attention, birth control, hormone therapy, or if it's more severe, surgery, or maybe even a hysterectomy. Now let's pause for a second. When you came to worship today, you did not know that you were gonna get a gynecology lesson. (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) You're welcome. First of all, it is nothing to fear and together, we can stop the stigma and shame of women's health, right? Second of all, these facts are important to the story, so stay with me. I'm sharing all of this to say the unnamed woman had a chronic medical diagnosis that is serious even by our modern standards, which means it was absolutely debilitating during her time. The gynecology of it all is also important because it has to do with our unnamed woman's second problem, which is her complete social isolation. Now, as we know, there are laws about ritual cleanliness in ancient Jewish culture that folks followed and some people still follow today. It says in Leviticus that when a woman is experiencing menstruation, she is ritually unclean. And during that time, anyone who touches her is also ritually unclean. And any chair she sits on and any bed she lays down on is also unclean. And also, if you touch that furniture, you are now also unclean. So for the unnamed woman in our story, she has likely been separated from her community for pretty much those entire 12 years. This disorder would have prevented her from living with her family, getting married, having children, and going to temple. If she can't sit in a chair, if she can't touch her children, she would not be able to do those things. 
So she's an outsider, and it's also likely that everyone knows why, as in people probably knew her as the bleeding woman. It's no wonder why we don't know her name in this text, because her condition had probably been the most prominent thing about her, even when people tell these stories later on. So when I was reading about the story, when I was reading commentaries and what theologians have said about this, many theologians talk about her physical struggle and her social isolation, and then they would write things like, so she sought out Jesus in the crowd because she was desperate and hopeless. Now, I agree that our unnamed woman was desperate because only desperate people come up with a plan like, I'm going to touch the fringe of a stranger's cloak and that will heal me. That is a ridiculous plan. Only desperate people come up with a plan like that. But I do not think that she was hopeless. Hopeless people stay home. Hopeless people give up. So I know that our unnamed woman was not hopeless. Even after 12 years of suffering, she was hopeful that things could still get better for her. So the woman goes into the crowd to meet Jesus. Again, the crowd. She's not supposed to touch anyone. So I imagine, and the way that some artists have portrayed this over the centuries, is that um, I imagine that she would be crawling on the ground so that other people wouldn't see her. So she gets close enough to Jesus, and she does it. She reaches out, and she touches the fringe of his cloak, and her prayer is answered. Immediately, the author of Mark writes, immediately her physical condition is healed. This is the moment that I love the most in the Bible's healing stories. We have all been waiting. We know what the problem is with this person, and then they get healed, and it has that sort of Disney movie ending feeling. We've anticipated it, it happened, the end, happily ever after, the credits roll, the lights come up, we all go home feeling really good. It feels like it should be the end of the story, but the story does not end there. That's when Jesus says out loud, who touched my cloak? Now, I think it's a little bit unusual that Jesus says this. First of all, I think he already knows who touched his cloak. I mean, if Jesus is so powerful that his healing abilities are leaking out of his clothing, I think that he is powerful enough to know who touched his cloak. But it's unusual because it's also unexpected. In a lot of his healing stories, Jesus doesn't reveal that the healing happened to the other folks around. In fact, he tells people, don't tell anyone that I have healed you. But I think that Jesus is calling attention to this healing. I think he's being a little clever here. He knows that if he calls attention to the woman being healed, he can heal her in a second way. When Jesus says, who touched my cloak, everyone stops. And the whole crowd, everyone listens to Jesus telling this woman that she has been cured of her bleeding disorder. They all find out that she's not the bleeding woman anymore. This is Jesus' invitation to them to welcome her back into the community. He seems to be saying, does everyone see what this woman did? She had nothing, and yet she reached out in faith. How about you reach out to her now? Because whether you feel it or not, you also have some power to share. I have to guess that that moment did wonders for helping her re-enter her community. I have to imagine 
that it also did wonders for her self-worth. I'm gonna end with a personal story. My first year at Vanderbilt Divinity School, I didn't know anybody. I got there and I met some people and one of those people was a guy that I started dating. And we dated for several months and he turned out to be not such a great guy, so we broke up. The Divinity School was a small, tight-knit community. Everyone knew everyone else and it also felt like everyone knew everything about everyone else. So this breakup felt very public, it felt very dramatic, and I felt very embarrassed by the whole thing. And I dealt with that feeling by physically avoiding the Divinity School building at all costs. I stopped going to school events and weekly chapel and community coffee hours. Basically, I would go to the Divinity School building just to go to class, and then I would leave immediately afterward and go do my homework somewhere else, like the Vanderbilt Engineering Building, where I knew I would never see any Divinity School students. <laughs> so I kept this up for quite some time, but I felt very miserable and very isolated. So I went to a staff member who was known for being deeply compassionate, named Professor Vicki Matson. I scheduled a meeting with Vicki, and I sat in her office, and I just spilled my guts. I told her everything about this relationship and how miserable I was during and after. And she listened, and she gave me tissues. And like Jesus in this story, Vicki did two things for me. One was sort of a very tangible healing moment, and one was a more unusual healing moment. The very tangible one may be the equivalent of Jesus providing physical healing was that she gave me the name and number of an amazing therapist. Great, we love it. The second thing that she did was a little bit unusual, so maybe the equivalent of Jesus saying, who touched my cloak? Vicki told me, and I'll never forget this because it was so weird, Vicki told me to come to the Divinity School in the middle of the night, which we could do because if you had your swipe card, you could get into the building 24-7. She said, come over here at 2 a.m. when no one else is here, and I want you to walk around and go through the hallways and go into the chapel and go into the classrooms and go into the common room, go wherever you want, and I want you to put your hands on the walls, and I want you to say out loud, this is my school, this is for me, I belong here. This is my school, this is for me, I belong here. Now I'm gonna be honest, I never went to the Divinity School at 2 a.m. <laughs> I never put my hands on the walls. But I did say the words, this is my school, this is for me, I belong here, over and over in my head, and like a mantra, and every time that I did, I heard them in Vicki Matson's voice. I don't know if you've ever had someone who you love and respect tell you that they believe in you with their whole heart and that they think that you are worthy and that you belong, but it feels pretty good to hear that. I didn't need to say it out loud. Vicki saying it out loud to me was healing enough. In Jesus' conversation with the bleeding woman, the story doesn't end when her bleeding stops. It ends when he tells her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
The story ends when Jesus is sure she knows that it wasn't magic and it wasn't the fabric of her cloak. It was her willingness to be ridiculed, to crawl on her knees, and to not give up hope. It was her faith that made that moment possible. And Jesus ends by calling her daughter as though she has always been part of his family, as though even before she was healed, she has always belonged. There are so many disheartening stories in the news. There are so many women and people of all genders who are so desperate, desperate for healing, desperate for rights, desperate for justice and peace. But what the story of Jesus and the unnamed woman tells me is that in every crowd, amongst all types of people, all beliefs and convictions, all ailments and abilities, in every crowd, God is there. And God is reachable and available to every one of us, whether we encounter God face to face or face to the floor. God doesn't fear our moments of absurd desperation, but honors those little slivers of hope that we hang on to. That God calls us family. That God assures us that our worst day is not the end of our story. That God reminds us that no matter how we were made, we were all made well. Amen.